got a wild one for you. What is it this time, Leonard? We've received a report that a man in Flugenville, by Professor Schatz, has discovered a way to transform ordinary metals into gold. You've got to be kidding. He's serious, Sam. We received this information from a very reliable source. Yes, as a matter of fact, our intelligence reports that a number of other parties, opposition parties, are on their way to Flugenville right now. But this thing is a myth, the Midas touch story. It goes back to medieval legend, when the alchemists claimed they could turn lead into gold. Medieval or not, the Treasury Department is very concerned. Why? Because if it's true, it could be the most powerful weapon since the atomic bomb. The group that controls that process could determine the economy of the entire world. Oh my gosh, Flugenville, Doctor Schatz. Uh, that, that was uh, now uh, that that was uh, we're, we're we're not okay. Hi hi folks, it's it's Dan, uh, your host for your main host for eventually Super Trainer. Welcome to episode sixty-two, the first episode of two thousand nineteen. I originally had made up a theme song for the year, which I was going to mouth for. It was something like, da-dan, da-dan, down, but down, down, something like that, but I forgot it, and I should have recorded it as I was doing it. So instead, I thought I'd play the first 40, 45 seconds of one of these segments of the Power Records, Gemini Man release from, I don't know, would it have been 76, 77 when it came out? If, if you guys uh, uh, know my, my writing on uh, my site, uh, some Polish American guy reviews things. Uh, several years ago, I covered in depth every single episode of Gemini Man. It's a show I really love. It's a show that uh, I think starts off really strong and then takes some strange turns as it goes along and becomes it's slightly different at the end than it was at the beginning. Uh, but we're not covering that now. I just wanted to play a bit of that because I love the Flugenville. I love Doctor Schatz. I love how annoyed uh, Sam is at Leonard throughout the whole. What is it now, Leonard? Oh God. And I just love it. I, so I thought I'd start off with that. And plus you get a, kind of a cool theme at the beginning. There you go. Enjoy that. Again, this is Dan. This is Eventually Super Train episode 62. This is the short-lived TV show podcast covering uh, sh- uh, short-lived shows that never got enough love. And eventually we will cover Super Train. I'm not lying about that. We go episode by episode. And in this one... We are actually two brand new old shows are premiering in this one. We are going to start off, and I'll, I'll leave this one as a surprise, although it may not be a huge surprise at, at if you're actually listening to this. But the first segment, we'll see the return of an old guest host. Well, a young old guest host. Sorry, sorry. Uh, the return of a of a of a previous guest host. How about that? Discussing a show from the early 90s and you will hear what that is in a moment. Then in the center segment will be me discussing 1986's The Last Precinct. Episode 1 from April of 86, The Gorilla Graham. If you check your feed a few days, about a week before um, this uh, episode hits you, uh, I reviewed the TV movie The Last Precinct, which aired after the Super Bowl Super Bowl Twenty in 1986. And then after Last Precinct, Mitchell Hadley's back, everyone, and we're still talking. The really wonderful Bourbon Street Beat, the episode Key to the City, episode 18. So we are going to be in the early 90s, then we're going to hop to the mid 80s, then we're going to hop to 1960. And let's, let's uh, dive right into some fun here. I, I don't know how many of you will know this right off the bat from hearing it, but um, here we go. Our brand new old show. It would be destroyed. Nations would go bankrupt. How come every time we get a nutcase, it falls into my lap? Many men were considered crazy until their theories were proven. Then they were promoted to genius. And don't forget the crazy woman. Okay, I'm full of baloney there. That was a little more the Gemini man. Here it is for real. 
Erie, Indiana. Day 45. I knew my hometown was going to be different from where I grew up in New Jersey. But this is ridiculous. Nobody believes me. But Erie is the center of weirdness for the entire planet. Item. A guy that looks suspiciously like Elvis lives on my paper route. Thank you, little paper boy. Item. Bigfoot eats out of my trash. Item. A bizarre housewife cult in town has been sealing up their kids in giant rubber kitchenware so they don't age. And now, just when I thought things couldn't get any worse, I discovered that in Erie, even man's best friend is up to no good. When I try to tell this to my family, they just think I'm weird. Better weird than dead. September 15th, 1991, Erie, Indiana. Oh boy, which aired on NBC, created by Jose Rivera and Carl Schaefer. And I'm just going to read you just for the basics. I'm going to read you just the back of the DVD uh, box. 13-year-old Marshall Teller has just been uprooted from his beloved home in New Jersey to Erie, Indiana, which seems at first to be the most normal place in the world. But Marshall soon discovers that there's more to Erie than meets the eye. Underneath the illusion of normality, Erie is swarming with weird stuff. The only person that believes him is his new friend, 10-year-old Simon Holmes. Together, they decide to investigate Erie's weirdness and keep record of it in hopes to one day show the world. We are talking today, the first episode, Foreverware, directed by Joe Dante, written by the creators, Jose Rivera and Carl Schaefer. It's a very basic uh, setup here. We meet, uh, we do indeed meet uh, Marshall. Uh, let's see, we meet his uh, sister, Cindy, who's a little bit older than him. She's uh, uh, practicing for her driving test. We meet his mom, Marilyn, who has a party planning business that is not a very good cook. And we meet his father, Edgar, who works at Things Incorporated, which is t- place the test products. And the episode begins kind of, you know, it looks pretty normal and, and, and average. And then all of a sudden, ding dong, a woman named Betty Wilson shows up at the door with her two sons, Ernest and Bertram. And Betty is straight out of, oh, 1964-ish, straight out of it. You, you'll know exactly when you see her, you'll go, oh, that. And her two sons, who kind of look Tweedledee and Tweedledum-ish, uh, enter with these two big containers full of foreverware. It's basically Tupperware, more or less, but it seems to be a very good Tupperware. And Betty puts on a very loud show to the family about this and invites Marilyn to a, who I'll probably just call mom throughout, Marshall's mom, to a Foreverware party, I believe the next day. And she leaves them with a Foreverware container that has, a, I think it's a bologna sandwich from like 1974 in it, which they promptly put in the fridge. Marshall thinks this is a little weird. And it gets even weirder when one of the boys shakes his hand, I don't know which one, let's say Ernie, and leaves him, a, and there's a note in his hand, Marshall's hand, that says Yearbook 64. So with Simon's help, they begin to investigate into some old yearbooks. And they discover a picture in the yearbook of what looks like Ernie and Bert, the two boys, but the same age. 
how can that be? And the mom goes to the party, and it's very sort of strange, but very sort of convincing to the mom. Be- Betty is, or yes, Betty. Um, for a moment, I was thinking of Betty Armstrong from the Lost Skeleton movies there. But no, she is, in fact, Betty. Betty is very persuasive. She has all these women there who look like they're all dressing out of the 60s early 70s and gradually the mom kind of warms up to it and they do uh foreverwear waves and there's a foreverwear song apparently foreverwear was uh, invented by betty's uh, husband who died a long time ago and yeah there's a wave in the song and there's a contract that is pretty epic i mean it's it's like you're buying a house contract to buy some foreverwear and all kinds of great foreverwear gadgets and things like that. A woman even breaks down into tears, talking about how the fact that her, you know, her husband and her are are you know over because he won't understand how much she loves foreverwear. As this is going on, Marshall and Simon are a little bit weirded out, and well, I'll tell you why. And this this will involve spoilers, which you you might have been able to guess this already. That's part of the fun. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you in this order, and then we'll hop to the discussion. We see them crack open the foreverware and check out the bologna sandwich. It's a bologna sandwich. It's fresh. It's exciting. They put the bologna sandwich back into the fridge, but don't close it all the way. Then they peer in on Ernie and Bert's bedroom and discover, oh boy, that every night for eight hours, their mom seals them their mom seals them, yes, into foreverware. They are actually very old right now. And and their mom's been sealing them in foreverware since 1964 when her husband died. And then she seals herself in foreverware. And, oh boy. The mom is falling under the spell of this foreverware thing. So Marshall has to save his mom from that. And also help Ernie and Bert out who clearly don't want to be little boys anymore. And of course, before I end this, there's one drawback to the foreverware and that's the next morning when the teller family opens their fridge everything is rotted and it seems to have something to do with that slightly opened bit of foreverware all right so let's let's dive on into the chat and uh we got an old friend back here we go erie indiana population sixteen thousand. 661 so six it's one six 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 what you guys got that you guys know what's going on we are t- hey everyone it's dan we are talking 1991 to 1992's erie indiana which is which is super fun which is um i i wanted to say um how i started watching it but um i actually realized i'm jumping the gun there i'm excited it's fun i think this is a super fun show it, uh, created by carl schaefer and jose rivera and I have here with me, you may recognize this voice. Yes, she's back. I forget where we left off. We were like back saving Moses or something like that. I forget where we ended <laughs> off. But, but I'm back here with the wonderful, the great Amy the Conqueror. How are you, Amy? I'm doing great, Dan. How are you? I'm doing okay. I'm, I'm excited to talk about this show. And I'd love to uh, just, let's dive oh, right in. Oh, me too. Yeah, let's dive right okay. in. What, um, now, have, had you seen this show before I asked you to join me? Uh, yes. Oh, tell but me, it was tell me more. twenty years ago. So. Tell, tell, <laughs> let's let's go back in time. I'm going to lean back and have a little water. Tell me more. <laughs> um, well, I didn't see it when it w- w- originally aired. I guess on NBC. 
Um, but I saw it when it was rerun on Fox in 1997 because it was on Saturday mornings. And, yeah, I, I may have been in my early 20s, but <laughs> still, for some reason, I uh, loved the show. So. <laughs> I uh, I had heard about – I mean, this was the time – this was 1991. This was the time of, uh, you know, like um, uh, Twin Peaks had just ended. Um, one of my favorite shows of all time, Get a Life – which isn't quite the same space, but which is very weird, uh, was on. and um, Oh, that was a great show. Yes. Oh, my gosh. And, uh, like, X-Files began in a couple of years, and a few years after that, Buffy. And you, and you were you were getting this, this sort of show. And, you know, when was The Adventures of Pete and Pete? That was the late 80s, I think. If I, if no, I watched – well, I mean, I watched 90s? that in the mid-90s. Oh, okay. Because – I th- and I was again way too old to be watching it, but it was such a great show. <laughs> I think th- here's the thing: I, I remember when the show came on the air, but and I was in my first year of college when uh, this aired, so I was 19. I don't know. I, I Ithaca College, and we had cable. So so well, well, this was on NBC, but it was we were high up on a, it was crazy uh, where we were. So you had to have some sort of antenna or something. But I did not oh, watch the I'm, show. I'm familiar with the area. So. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And and um, <laughs> it's a great area. It's a beautiful, beautiful place. Um, well, as they say, it's gorgeous. Yeah. And and I but I did not watch it for whatever reason. Possibly because I was in film school and I was actually spending almost all my free time either at screenings or in the library on like the third or fourth floor where they had like stations where you could watch movies all the time. And so I was doing that. And the only shows I remember watching religiously to semi-religious, I've never been very religious, semi-religiously for that time period, 91 to 92, because Erie, Indiana had 19 episodes in that space, were um, Mystery Science Theater, 3000, and that was um, season three of Mystery Science Theater. That was started with Cave Dwellers, ended with Master Ninja 2. Uh, Santa Claus Conquers the Martians was in there. That's when they watched all the Gamera films and all like Mighty Jack and Time of the Apes. It's a super fun season. That's also the season when they did the first Turkey Day at Thanksgiving. Uh, I also watched uh, Get a Life, which was canceled halfway during the season, and season three of The Simpsons. And this is the time period mm-hmm. like seasons three to six of The Simpsons are the best the best. So yeah, I in, can agree with that. Yeah. yeah, so you're in a beautiful space here. I just missed Erie, Indiana the same way I missed Twin Peaks. I heard about it. I heard it was great. I now own Twin Peaks on Blu-ray. I'm watching it for the first time <laughs> all the way through, including the return yeah. season. And I just wow, watched it. Wow, yeah, ep- I was in high school and I watched it and when it was out and I loved it. Oh. I had one other person in high school who watched it. We would talk <laughs> The next morning at our lockers. I, I knew I knew a lot of people who did, but I, I I sort of wasn't paying attention when the first season aired, and it was only like it's only like seven episodes in the pilot, and so I was already like I'm already behind. I watched a bit of it, and I'm like, I'm it's a soap <laughs> opera, kind of. I'm so far behind, but um, yeah, and I just rewatched the episode where we learn who killed Laura. If you don't know, oh. I I ain't gonna tell you, neither is Amy, but it's <laughs> nope. It's, absolutely heartbreaking and so scary and so weird. Erie, Indiana isn't that scary and weird, but it is weird and it has creepy moments in it. So I guess let's hop right into this. 
Uh, let's do the first episode is Foreverware, right? Am I right? I, I don't have my desk here. Is that yep. the title? That's yep, the title. you're right. Okay, yeah, I suddenly realized I have the box set here. I was reading off the back of, but the actual disc case is some distance away. So Foreverware is the first episode written by Carl Schaefer and Jose <laughs> Rivera. Uh, aired September 15th, 1991. Where were you? I know where I was in the, that shitty triple dorm room that was actually a double that they converted into. They didn't convert it. They just put an extra bunk in it. So there were three of us living in a space for two, and one of us used to get Ooh. very drunk and pee on things. It wasn't me. Oh, uh, where that's... were you? Where were you, September 15th, 91? Do you remember, Amy? No. I mean, I was in high school, so who knows? <laughs> I don't even <laughs> remember the show from that time. No. Yeah, yeah. Twin Peaks, I remember. This, uh-huh. I don't. <laughs> okay. All right, Amy, forever where? Give me your overall thoughts on the episode, and then we'll go more specific. Oh, I really like this one. Um, basically, the aesthetic of it got me, first of all. Like the uh, the 60s costumes or, or yeah. clothing or, you know, just the look of it. I thought that was great. And the the way it played out, it really did remind me of Joe Dante and the Burbs <laughs> for some reason. Yes, yes. So. Um, yeah, I like this one the best out of the the first ones I've rewatched. So it was it was a good start to the season, I think, or to the show itself. Yeah, I I, I agree. I think um, yeah, I, I think it's it's got a lovely pace to it, and ev- every scene has something that no, not that. I mean, the joy of the show is it's it's a half an hour, so it's much quicker paced than obviously an hour long show. So so there's something right. really fun about the fact that. Every scene has something in it that brings you forward and brings you forward. And there is that, that wonderful aesthetic, almost like um, <clears throat> I almost thought of like when the um, when the, the, the lady next door shows up, um, uh, Betty Wilson, Betty Wilson, right? And she shows up mm-hmm. and she has a very sort of Edward Scissorhandsy feel like like she's oh, somewhere absolutely, yeah. sort, sort of in that vein. And she has the two the two sons who look like they they look like they cloned the son of the neighbor of John Cusack and Better Off Dead. And, <laughs> and, and, and it's just great. You, you see them in that. And it's just I, I, I think it's um. I, yeah, I think it's it's a real wonderfully uh, put together episode. It's wonderfully paced, well written, um, and it has a great. I mean, the reveal of what is going on is so wonderfully goofy, and the line yeah. about um, uh, uh, I, I forget if 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 Marshall yells it or if it's in the narration, something like the reason why we saw them in the yearbook of '64 is because their mom vacuum seals them every night in giant size forever wear. There's something about that yeah. that's like that is nice and nutty, and I love it. So, <laughs> and I, I remember, I mean, I um, yeah, the the first time I watched this properly was six months ago, when I found a copy of the box set, the DVD box set, which I think is out of print, uh, for a decent price, and I watched the first half of the episodes, and I actually thought halfway through, actually earlier than that, oh, I need to contact Amy, and and. Um, <laughs> And, and awesome. yeah, and, and so, but the the joy of this episode to me is that yeah, it's it's very quickly paced. Everything um, advances the plot, but then gives you these little nice little aside moments 
uh, little moments like the um, when when um, uh, the woman opens her fridge and she puts in the foreverware and it's just filled with foreverware. And it looks like um, yeah. sort of like what like in the X Files, like when they would open a fridge or something, and it would be filled with like nothing but embryos or specimens or something like that. Right. That's exactly <laughs> what it looks yep. like, and it's it's so nice and crazy, um, and and uh, we we could talk about. I mean, there there are, well, I, I guess it makes sense in the end. I uh, it it kind of moves towards its end very quickly, which I like, and to me, sort of sort of aesthetically and. Um, um, uh, sort of, what what word am I looking for here? Sort of aesthetically and um, uh, as a viewer, I think it all works perfectly for me. But there but there were one or two moments, yeah. maybe one moment where I was like, huh, okay, well we're we're hopping from like A to H rather than A to B right. at certain moments. But um, uh, well, you but got over, you know twenty minutes or twenty five minutes. So. You got twenty five minutes. <laughs> you got twenty five minutes to try to tell the story of like a woman who's been keeping her kids in in Tupperware for thirty years. Uh, copyright exactly. Tupperware Corporation. Yeah, exactly. Um, but what um, what were what were some of the things that grabbed you? I'm going to look at my notes. Well, I mean, I thought first of all it was a good introduction because you know I didn't mind the way they introduced the family and yes. you know what was going on. Um, but overall, like I, I thought the story was great and, you know, the, the twins were creepy enough and so was the mother that, you know, the whole aesthetic and the only thing I thought that really was unnecessary was the one crying housewife at the foreverware party. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And they do the way. And that seemed out of place Let's do it. Let's do it. Let's do it. Whoa. Sorry. I just did it for (laughs) a Yeah. Yeah. Doing the wave to cheer her up. But I did like their uh, their song. <laughs> <laughs> and so, the, gr- the gr- yeah, yeah, the great thing is yeah, when they break into the Foreverware song, like Marshall's mom has a look on her face. First, she's kind of laughing, and then she kind of gets into it, where it's almost like <laughs> she's being a like as a Borg kind of thing. She's being assimilated right into this. Right. Except instead of being these slightly goofy aliens with these headset things on, it's it's a bunch of like '60s moms. Right, <laughs> and, and, and I will say one of my favorite moments is when when, when Betty gives um, Marshall's mom, whose name I didn't write down, I just wrote mom. Um, Marshall's mom, uh, uh, Marilyn, or that, something I, like I go that. for that. Yeah, I go for that. She gives her like the contract to buy the foreverware, and like the five I think gals um, at the meeting are sort of in a straight line behind her. And the mom takes mm-hmm. a step forward going, hmm, okay, this will work. And then if you watch, the mom's kind of circle, do a half circle around her. Which, <laughs> and, and she looks, looks up and, and one of them comes in like on the side of the frame. And the mom's like, okay. And she's like, she's ready to sign. But this is clearly crazy, which is neat. Yeah. <laughs> um, can we, t- can, uh, can I, I, I would like to, and this is, we'll only do this for this episode because, um, so, so it begins with Marshall describing, and we can discuss in the next episode maybe sort of the interesting, well, I found it interesting in the first couple at least, the way they do the timelines of it. Because this begins with Marshall saying, um, uh, you know, th- this place is crazy. And then it's the story. And it's almost kind of but not quite as presented as here is something crazy that happens. Um but but I just wanted to um, if I can if I can get my DVD there I would like to um, 
And and can I just say I don't know why I, I was thinking this. I watched uh, Dario Argento's Inferno like a week ago, and every time they go in the, um, especially in the later episodes when it's more orange, when they go into the attic or wherever it is, Marshall is. Is he in the basement? Where is he? That room. Yeah, I I I thought it was the garage, but I'm not oh, okay. sure. Yeah, I thought it was. But the yeah, attic, I know the. But, I know what you're talking about. Yeah, and and there there's a scene at the beginning of Inferno where they're kind of like an alchemist kind of thing with like one of those, you know, witches mm-hmm. cauldrons kind of thing. And every time I see this room, for some reason I think of Inferno. I don't know why. I could be way off base, but <laughs> that's that just me maybe trying to bring Daria or Jeff. No, you know, I can see that. I was going to say I'll bring Argento to it. I'll, I'll mention Doctor Who at some point. You you guys know the drill after, <laughs> after all the episodes. But I just wanted to um so so you get I just wanted to um cover with you just go through the um uh opening real quick. So you see Marshall he does his thing and he you know he has the the closet thing that he opens up that has all the uh, relics of mm-hmm. of the adventures. So then you see him as the, uh, and I love the fact that one of my other favorite shows in this season, well, if I call this one of my favorite shows in this season, because I'm just watching this now, was Get a Life, which features a paper boy. Now, granted, Chris <laughs> Elliott is an older paper boy than, than Marshall is. Right. <laughs> but um, so, so you get, um, so I'm just going to go through uh, just just real quick the images leading up to the opening credits. And the opening credits, just real fast, and we won't do this again. This will just be a first episode thing. Because there's a very specific montage it has. And the credits are very, Mm -hmm. like, early 90s, like, video kind of credits. um, That almost feel a little off from the rest of the show. But um, they feel a little strange to me. But it starts off, you see him, him, uh, Marshall's going down the street, and you see a mailman who apparently has a gun. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> yep. <laughs> that was odd. <laughs> yeah, he reaches for a gun, and then you get him him throwing the uh, throwing the papers. I don't know what else you have. Oh yes, and you get three dads who are on power lawnmowers who are like in sync with one another, uh, which is charming. I mean, it's very. Um, I mean, Tim Burton, maybe little David Lynch yeah. in there too. Maybe yep. even a little, maybe even a little like Jacques Tati and and some strange stuff that he would do. Um, then you then you get um, uh, the basketball guys. You get like a line of like five guys dribbling basketballs. Oh, I never noticed this one. Did you notice this one? The woman hanging out the clothes, and one of yes. them is a With straight, the straight jacket. jacket. I never noticed yeah. that before. Okay, <laughs> sorry, folks. This is this is what we call real time stuff. I do this on my um, minute by minute podcast. We don't normally do that here, but there were just too many things happening for me to write them all down and I wanted to get them down right now. So forgive me, Amy, for, uh, for going to, to, oh. to, into the minutia. Uh, You're so forgiven. Oh, and then of course, who do we have with the tiki torches? It is, thank you very much, little paper boy or whatever he says. It's Elvis. <laughs> yep, I think that's exactly what he says. <laughs> and, and the great thing is that if, if you are, if you've been listening to this episode, you, you are about to hear I think me talk about the first episode of The Last Precinct. I talked about the TV movie on a minisode pr- prior to this, but in The Last Precinct, there is a character in it called the King, who is one of the cops, who is an Elvis impersonator. So I'm not saying I meant to do that on purpose, but we got a lot of Elvis impersonators, however briefly, 
in these shows. So yeah, you get the eerie Indiana, you get the the Raven with the eyeball, and the Raven shows up. He, he the Raven eats all their mail, which I think is a nice touch. <laughs> I'd like that, but and um and then we go into the credits, and uh, the credits are these weird things where they look very uh, the credits look very Nickelodeon to me. I don't mm, yeah. I, I, because you get like close up of like Bella Lugosi, I think from like White Zombie, and you get lots of crazy video effects, and you get um, uh, Marshall on a bridge on his bike, kind of weaving around as all kinds of crazy. And then you get Simon <laughs> running, and it's just, and then you get dogs spinning around. Yeah, I'm just looking at it here; it's crazy. There's oh, there, there's some images from the show that I'm not gonna ruin here. You get Nosferatu, you get Night of the Living Dead, you get Bigfoot chasing after them, <laughs> chattering teeth. And then you get Eerie Indiana itself, yeah, and this giant eyeball. It's a really kind of nutty opening credit sequence that I think I think sets it up pretty good, although it does feel very, I think, 80s Nickelodeon to me. But then, you know, I could be wrong there. No, so, I, I could see that. Um, so... So what else do you have, Amy? What else did you love about the episode? Oh, what, oh did you? Oh, what did you have problems with it at any point? Uh, no, other than the one crying housewife, um, I thought okay. the episode was overall, like you said, well paced and fun. Yeah. And yeah, I, I just I liked the look of it. it. It was a good start. I I, I like the fact that Joe Dante will. Um, do uh, sometimes multiple things happening at once in a shot. So there's the shot mm-hmm. where, um, so it's the day after the you know the family is given this bologna sandwich from 1974 in the Foreverware, and the mom has been looking through the catalog and she's made these pancakes apparently related to the catalog. So the camera is like tracking in on Marshall with this stack of pancakes, and on the left side of the screen is his sister, and it's been. Um, uh, his, it's been said that his sister is practicing for her driving test. So as Marshall, you hear Marshall's narration, he's kind of looking at these pancakes in confusion, and then his mom comes up. As as they're all talking and the narration is going, his sister is on the left side of the screen, like doing like driving, like stick shift kind of driving things in the pancake. <laughs> Which is pretty cool. Which I didn't notice that till the second time I watched it because I was watching Marshall. No, I didn't notice that. Uh, um, let's see. Uh, what else do we have? I love the um, the pickle lifter. I don't quite know what it is. <laughs> yeah. I was what, still what trying it? to figure out how that worked. I watched the episode a couple times, and I'm like, okay, so <laughs> that that actually was a big question for me. How yeah, does that, that actually work? Yeah, that's because they it have fit all the pickles. Are they layered on top of each other, <laughs> yeah, that... or do you only put like nine pickles in it? Like, <laughs> I... how does it work? Yeah, I, I I was wondering about that myself because it's this glorious thing where they when she, when the mom opens it, it's like oh, and everyone giggles and laughs and it's like, yeah, oh, they're pickles, <laughs> they're pickles, enjoy them, they're pickles, you know. And I do what when that one woman who you didn't like was crying when. The um, Betty offered her a Kleenex or a tissue. Was it? Was that in Foreverware too? She holds Ooh, up like a box. I think, I think it's like I love the fact <laughs> instead that of a that tissue box. Like yeah, it's like every yeah exactly. Like these tissue are from you know 1963. Enjoy them. These are fantastic. You know the day Ken the day Kennedy died was assassinated. I sealed a box of tissue and I've opened these just for you, kind of thing. 
<laughs> Perfect. Um, <laughs> let's see what else. I, I love uh, I love uh, when Simon and um, and Marshall hit the ground after the mom sees them looking in at at what she's doing with her sons, and they both yell, "Run away!" There you go, <laughs> Holy Grail. You got these are good kids. They know they're Holy Grail. Yes. Um, nice. <laughs> Let's see. Let's. See. I'm just. I'm gonna do one more scan of my notes here, and we'll just see if we have anything else going on. Yeah, I love that the boys are named Bert and Ernie. Um, mm-hmm. Yep. And there is something so wonderful about how gross the fridge in the Teller house gets. <laughs> <laughs> I noticed that as well, and like the the shelf is bent. <laughs> oh yeah, it's like when the dad goes the top in shelf it, is bent. Yeah, yeah, it's like it's it already looks bad. Funny. Yeah, but when Marshall leaves the the top off slightly from the baloney, there's like that that thirty year old, whatever you know, thirty year old baloney, just like ugh. Ooh, I don't even ugh. want to know what that smells even, like. I, I don't even want to know. And it's so gross when they take it out of the thing. It's so gross. Um, let's see. Yeah, I I do like the sequence with the yearbook. Although I would question their. Um, uh, mathematics. I understand they're thirty somethings, but if it was sixty four yeah. and they were eight, wait a minute, no, yeah, eight, well, no, they would have been older than that in seventh yes. grade. Yes, that's right. No, they would have been. No, they, yeah, they. Would, I thought no, the I, same. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, exactly. They would have been in their early forties then. Yes, I got my, I got my, yes. I got my math wrong. Thank you, Amy. That's why. Yeah. <laughs> I also why. didn't understand why they had so many yearbooks because they said yearbook nineteen sixty four. How many schools are in Erie, Indiana? Yeah, that you had to have so many yearbooks. <laughs> and and would they, and I guess I guess that must have been so their mom. I, well, I guess that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Just the thought that their mom would have taken them out of school at that point and just had them right. stay with her, which is kind of um, not very creepy. nice. <laughs> yeah, creepy. No. <laughs> creepy yeah, she and was I, super creepy. Yeah, and I, I like the concept too that she is able to open the foreverware from the inside, but if someone opens mm-hmm. it from the outside during the cycle, as it were, that's what I'm calling it. Then everything goes wrong, and everything resets right. itself. Um, let's see. Uh, I think that's all I have. Do you have anything else on this one? Um, yeah, <laughs> when uh, the twins are let out of their foreverware. And they say they're going to take care of their mother, and they're both punching their hands. I'm like, wow, that's a bit rough. Like, yeah. <laughs> just open her foreverware. You don't have to beat her up. Yeah, I saw that. Because that implication the... was like, wow, that's that's dark. They're, yeah, they're going to, I mean, because part of me is like, okay, it's been 30 years. I Okay, I, I, I could see your anger. But I, I, I think what it is is like they're, they're probably doing that, and then by the time they actually get to their room, they're like, just open it up. All right, there yeah. we got it. That's <laughs> all. Yes, and then and then they become the older guys, and I love the scene with the two older, older Ernie and Bert's yeah. tapping yeah. on the thing. Oh, that just, was perfect. That, that was that was really lovely, and I love the fact that they got these two younger twins and the two older twins, and they just look fantastic together. Yeah, totally believable. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and um, and I think that's oh, and I do like the just a lovely moment. Between the twins and Marshall, 
when the mom leaves after getting her I, I love it well I wanted to cancel my order and I just some paperwork is this what you were looking for and he's got her paperwork <laughs> right there which is awesome and she's like okay we're yep. gonna go and Marshall's looking at them and, and one of them gives gives Marshall a wink and Marshall doesn't do a full on like alright I saved the day but he like does a sort of okay well we can you know Erie's a pretty strange place but I think I might be able to help. And, and it's kind of a very reserved but nicely done face on him, which is which is cool. Mm -hmm. So yeah. and of course and of course the actor is um is I, I don't know how to pronounce his first name. Omri? Omri? Yeah, that's how I was pronouncing it. Yeah. Okay, Katz who played John Ross on uh J.R. Junior on Dallas. Oh the yeah, yeah. So yep. and um, I forget his last episode. I was going to look it up. I'll have it for you in a few episodes. I imagine it's. I was at the end of season twelve. I think when Sue Ellen leaves and takes him with her to Europe, and she marries another guy. Mm. I think that's the season. <laughs> where, that's the season where she makes the movie about Dallas. And have you seen that season? It's super fun. Oh, I'm sure I did back in the day. I need yeah. to rewatch the entire yeah. thing. I would yeah, love I, I to. Won't, I, I won't go any further than that. But I think that's where he ended on the show because I don't think they go to Dallas and you hear about. And then obviously the older, hunkier John Ross shows up in the in the previ the, the 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 TNT Dallas, which which carries right. on. Um, which I, I love as well. So. Yeah, I, I quite enjoyed too. Yeah, I don't, you know, I, I really enjoyed it. So, so I think that is it for um, for episode one of Erie, Indiana, uh, Forever Where. I, yeah, I think it's super fun. I'm glad you enjoyed it, Amy. And um, yep. I, I, I guess, uh, so before we wrap up, where can we find you online? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at Amy the Conqueror. Or, sorry, Amy underscore the underscore Conqueror. Hooray! You guys remember that, right? You remember, Amy. We did voyages. Yeah, we it's been a while. So. All through time. <laughs> we traveled all through time. It was fantastic. Yes, we yeah, did. It's, it's been, um, I think the last time we recorded together was like 14 months or so. So it's been some time. Uh, so, um, uh, yeah, so I don't... Yay! Thank you. Thank you so much for joining me. I don't have a, I don't have a tagline for this. I guess... I get. I can. I. I will say. I. I. I don't have a tagline, but I have a slight, um, and not an anecdote. And then we'll just end it. Uh, the past week or two, I've been sleeping on an arrow bed, and I take down the arrow bed in the morning because it takes up a lot of room in the room I'm in, and the noise that the arrow bed makes when you disconnect the thing and the air begins to come out is almost exactly like popping open the forever wear. <laughs> which, 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 the past two or three mornings has been a very weird sound. I because I want to look oh, in the hole there imagine. to see if there's kind of like a fat kid with glasses in there. There has not <laughs> been so. So that's Erie, Indiana, episode one, everyone. And now I believe we're going to go on to episode one of the last precinct. I'll see you there. <laughs>
right. I hope you got your wacky hats on, everyone, because we are going to April 11th, 1986. Oh, boy. The Gram, the first hour-long regular episode of The Last Precinct, written by Frank Lupo, directed by Michael Lang. Let me give you the... I'm, gonna, I'm just going to cut to the chase. I originally was going to do a more lengthy plot breakdown, but I'm just going to cut to the chase. The premise behind this is our gang, our group of goofballs from The Last Precinct, the place where sort of all the Academy screw-ups, except for the really old guys, go. They're called up one night. They're at Honey Buns, the local drive-in. They get a call, some sort of zookeeper in trouble, something to do with an ape. So they head to the local zoo, they meet a lovely uh, young zookeeper who Night Train falls for, and they meet Sam the Ape. Sam the Ape is recently in from Africa, and he is not feeling well. So they are able to corral Sam and get him to the hospital, but not after shooting Raid, Rick Dukeman, the fat guy, in the behind with a tranquilizer dart. So they are now at the hospital, and they find inside Sam a gigantic diamond Oh boy, how'd that get there? Must have come from Africa, and it must have something to do with this goony mobster guy and his two goons. There are a lot of goons. And so you got the mobster guy, the head mobster guy, he goes maron a lot, and you get the other two guys who are sort of his hitmen, keeping an eye on the ape, waiting for the ape to expel the, the diamond, waiting to just, I don't know, kidnap the ape. They're jerks. And one of them looks exactly like Gross Out from King Frat. What the gang decides to do is, instead of putting Sam the Ape back, they're going to put Raid, who isn't too happy about it, but does it into a big old gorilla suit, and or an ape suit. And I got lost in all the simians in this, because it's called the Gorilla Gram, but there's a character named Albert the Ape, and it's just, ah. So we're, I'm just calling call by their names, I guess. So Raid dresses up as Sam, goes into the cage. Meanwhile, Sam has fallen in love with Mel, so she's kind of taking him out on the town to kind of have something for Sam to do when he's not actually in the cage. The goons uh, grab Raid, not knowing that he's not a real uh, ape, and they discover soon after, however, that he has a real ape. And meanwhile... Sam goes on a bit of a rampage doing a mini sort of King Kong thing on top of, I believe, the uh, a local local uh, local building. Um, and let's see, what else happened? There's a lot going on here. Somehow a, a guy in a gorillagram outfit gets involved and Captain Wright, Adam West, keeps like assaulting him. And in the end, it's all about trying to catch these goons with the ape or with the diamond. They got the... Ah, it's fun. It's a lot of fun, that, but that's the that's the straightest way to say it. Uh, mobster hides a diamond in an ape. Police find out about it, put an undercover ape in there, and now the undercover ape has been kidnapped. We got to save the day, and it's fun. So that that is the those are the very basics of the gorilla gram, the very basics. And I want to say, so I remember watching this. I do not remember if they showed the movie again before they played this because it was it was over two months it was what like a two full months and about 15 days or so and uh so there was some time in between this and that and i realized that um so we're we're obviously we're this is obviously sort of but not quite 
Police Academy-esque ripoff with little, like I said, little moments of police squatty type stuff with um, when when um, Price runs into the hospital and he's running around yelling for help, yelling for help, and there's a bell on the uh, desk, hospital desk, and a little little caption comes up saying, ring bell for service with an arrow. And then when Sam is first shown, this is the big one with an arrow. Stuff like that. But it's sort of mostly kind of, I guess, it's Police Academy-esque. Uh, so this is the time where, and actually I just had to double check this, I was going to say this was in between Police Academy 2 and 3, but Police Academy 3 came out March 21st, 1986, in between the Last Precinct TV movie and the Gorilla Gram, so the, it's a whole new world, it's a whole different thing with Police Academy 3 back in training, and one of the things, of course, as I said, and I, I won't repeat myself too much, but in the Minnesota I, I say that Although I, I remember this always being very Police Academy, the, the plotting isn't very Police Academy style at all. I mean, Police Academy 3 is, you have the basic, you know, they have 30 days, Mauser's Academy or Lassard's Academy, 30 days. But the rest of it's just jokes until you get to the end, then there's a wacky chase kind of thing. Uh, it's really only, 5 has a plot line mostly going through it, apart from that half hour in the middle where it's just a lot of goofing around on the beach. And Mission to Moscow, if you can make it through, is mostly about that plot line with the video game and, and the gangs, Russian gangster and, and stuff. Six is probably the one that has the most, the plotting that's most similar to something like The Last Precinct so far. The Gorillagram starts right off. We get a bit of stuff between Wings Hauser's uh, character and uh, Price, our Mahoney-type character. And then we go right into the gorilla stuff. The thing with this, though, is that I remember when Police Academy 3 came out and I loved it. And one of the reasons why I loved it is because it's funny. The other reason why I loved it is because I wanted to see the characters again. And I was thinking about Last Precinct and thinking, who are these characters? The only reasons I know any of their names is because I have them in a list in front of me. I, I'm... I'm I'm just looking at. It. I know Adam West is in it. Who whose character is? I couldn't tell you. Uh, I you know obviously I, I do uh, I do love some Mel and Night Train is Ernie Hudson who's awesome and I th always thought Rick Dukeman was very funny. Uh, but apart from that, the other characters don't register at all. I mean, there's an Elvis impersonator. There's a guy from India who apparently in real life was one of the best uh, Indian tennis players ever. I guess um, named Alphabet. And the the characters aren't characters that actually grab you or interest you. So so. They did a lot of stuff in the TV movie, but one thing they didn't do is get you to give uh, two dudes about the character, which is one of the things that the first Police Academy does, is it actually brings you in. And yeah, most of them are pretty lightly sketched in, but you get just enough about each character. You see they have a bit of an arc and a bit of a story, and it goes, and it's great. And like, Tackleberry doesn't have quite of an arc, but he has an arc with his marriage, romance and marriage in the second one, so he gets it there. But thinking about Last Precinct, I thought, there isn't really a single character. There are some actors, but there isn't a single character character they're a pair of legs but there isn't a single character that i care to can remember not care to remember maybe that'll change as we go along but uh, but i wanted to play you something but i'm having a hell of a time pulling the audio so let me play you this and i'm going to be standing right next to the microphone as i play this give me one moment bear with me for just a moment folks here we go Let's all be there. Sex. I love this! All of the 
watchful eye of Captain Rob Wright. This is one nutty precinct in the craziest bunch of cops that ever hit the streets. Yabba dabba doo. They didn't graduate from the police academy. They escaped to the last precinct. Yeah, well, that sounded like junk. I know that, and I apologize. I've had a hell of a time pulling the audio for these uh, these shows that we're doing right now. But that was a little blurby derby that was before this episode. So if, yeah, if, if the characters, it, it seemed like maybe even the network or the, the producers were like, um, is anyone going to remember who any of those characters are? It's Ernie Hudson. No, no, what his character was. No. So they did that. As far as the episode itself goes, I really like it. Uh, I don't know if... He, he, I was, I was going to say, Stephen J. Cannell isn't involved in the writing of this one. And I'm not as familiar with the work of Frank Lupo as I am Stephen J. Cannell. Stephen J. Cannell has written many, many wonderful episodes of things, including quite a few brilliant episodes of uh, Rockford Files. But, yeah, this this is a... Um, this this is a really fun Frank Lupo script. It's 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 got a nice sense of uh, zany to it the whole time. Everyone's got a little something to do. It's all a little crazy. There are actually some pretty funny jokes in this one. And, and some good lines, as opposed to the f- last precinct, which eh, wasn't as great. It's funny, this is, I would almost have wished, and maybe if this were like in the 70s or earlier, this could have been like the first episode of the show, possibly. Because the, the problem I have with the TV movie is just that a lot of stuff happens, but it doesn't really sort of nail it. It doesn't really stick. I don't know if it's like pre uh, post Super Bowl jitters or something like that. But this episode, as crazy as it is, seems far more relaxed and far funnier. You know, from the uh, from the opening moment where all the um, sheriff's department cars uh, pull up and Wingshauser throws open his door and they all pull up so beautifully and in line that pff, his door slaps the the uh, the car door next to him. I like that. I like the moment with um, Wingshauser saying a price. Um, Pointing, say, challenging to a fight and pointing. I'm, this isn't going to be as funny as it is there, but like pointing to his badge, and uh, says something like, "You want to go for? It? You want to go for it? You know, this badge it comes off. Yeah, like that toupee. I like that line. And the moment when all the guys are in was it Night Train, the King, Raid, and and Price are in the um, the uh, Sam's cage with the tranquilizer gun that only has one dart. They take like three steps in and, and Sam's kind of looking at him, looking at him and Ray just yells something like, what the hell are we doing? <laughs> they all scatter and go crazy. There are some actually funny moments in this. Uh, it's not, you know, it's not co- consistently crazy fun, good times, but I think, I think there are quite a few fun moments in this and it's got, oh, it's got John DeSanti who, in fact, is uh, Gross Out Gombrowski from King Frat, one of my all-time favorites. There's a movie that takes its based on Animal House very seriously. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it, it, in the end, like like I said, the um, this is uh, this is uh, this is a, this is a fun episode. I'm not going to go on forever about this. I've already gone on for ten minutes, uh, but. It's a fun episode. It's got some great moments and all the switching around of the apes. And, you know, you got you got Sam the ape and you got this guy named Albert the ape who's on a local TV show who plays an ape that kids love and who teaches lessons about, I don't know, crossing the street and drugs. And then you have the guy in the gorilla gram outfit who, like I said, keeps accidentally getting assaulted by Adam West's character. There's a lot of funny stuff, and you get a lot of Raid in it, who who is possibly the the generally just the most the silliest of the characters. Um, there, and there's a great moment where he sort of in the in the gorilla ape suit steals. A, I know, I know. I'm sorry. Uh, I'm just gonna call him Raid. Raid in the suit 
steals a car and then the car gets a tire shot shot out and then police emergency he steals a bike and there's just a great image of this enormous guy in this this uh simian suit going down the street in a bike and i thought for a moment it was going to become like the last half hour of harold lloyd's girl shy where harold has to get across town as fast as possible to stop his gal from marrying another guy but he doesn't have a vehicle and so he kind of like commandeers everything he can and it gets crazier and crazier nuttier and nuttier until he's doing like a ben-hur thing with like uh on like a like a horse-drawn two horse-drawn wagon kind of kind of stuff it's fantastic i thought that i was hoping that's what this would be like the bike would break down and then he'd end up like on a skateboard or something i don't don't know it didn't happen uh that that chase scene ends pretty quickly but it's still fun to watch uh what else goes on in here yeah the king gets some nice modes he does a lot of singing again the the first song we hear him sing is alley oop which is not one of i know alley oop from beach boys party and i've suddenly completely forgotten who originally sang Alley Oop. The Hollywood Argyles, who also did Hully Gully. Uh, and, and so he's the King's singing uh, because the tranquilizer dart ends up in raids behind. Uh, the King sings Alley Oop to uh, Sam to get him to calm down so they can bring him in and get the diamond. And it, it, I think it's a fun episode too also because the... Um, uh, like like with the previous one, the gangsters are a little tough. I mean, the, the head gangster guy, Maron, he shoots uh, an owl. And the other two gangsters are mostly incompetent, except when they're competent, which is always fun. Uh, Adam West uh, spends most of the episodes sort of going, hey, over here, and, uh, 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 and just um, overselling it maybe slightly. Uh, Mel is, is gorgeous as always, and they, her and Sam make a make a really cute couple. And there's a fun scene with Wings Hauser's character and his sidekick, who I want to say is named Dial or something, um, stop. Mel and Sam as they're driving down the road and they have a fun uh, conversation. But uh, yeah, in general, this is this is I think this is a pretty a pretty good episode. Hey, it's my dog George, and George enjoyed uh, the episode too. And um, where was where was I? Sorry, he he just jumped on my lap. And at one point near the end, I think when the mobster and his goons are going into a restaurant and they see Sam and Mel at a table, we get uh, The Lion Sleeps Tonight playing, which is always... And it's the full-on crazy, you know... I can't hit those high notes anymore, and I kind of struggle to hit that right there, and I apologize that having a dog on your lap isn't helping. But you know what's that? And it's kind of fun to see. you got the, the Sam and Mel and gangs and and someone dressed up as as an ape and a gorilla gram and lion sleeps tonight playing and it's sort of um when i was 12 watching this that because i listened to those sorts of songs my dad used to listen to all that sort of stuff when i was a kid that would have been like a perfect moment for me apes beautiful women shooting yelling fat guys and the lion sleeps tonight i mean does it get better it probably gets better maybe the next episodes will get better but i think this is a really I don't know. The the fact that they're starting the show in early April leads me to believe that they have zero confidence in the show. You don't start shows in early April, especially following the uh, Super Bowl. You think you would have would have been a little nicer to it. I wonder what the reasoning was about it. It's Stephen J. Cannell, too. Uh, but, yeah, the Gorilla Gram, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to scan my notes one more time. I'm trying to keep this more succinct than I did the 45 minutes I talked about the uh, the TV. Hey, George, what do you think, George? You got any more notes? Give me, give me a second. Uh, 
Yeah, I don't have much else going on. I did take George off my lap. It was getting to be a bit uh, too much. I don't have much else here. I think, you know, after after the uh, the TV movie, I thought I'd be much more critical of this, but I just find it charming. I mean, okay, if I'm going to get critical, here we go. Um, I think the, um, the, the structure is a bit strange. I'm wondering, I when I watched it uh, just a few hours ago, I didn't sort of watch it and see... Uh, what the commercials did to it but there's something I, I, I'm almost wondering if I should watch it again to see because it sort of it kind of barrels along uh, for about the first I don't know t- t- 10 15 minutes or so from the, from the beginning in Honey Buns to they get to the hospital and then it kind of slows down as Raid is they're trying to convince him to get in the gorilla suit and Albert the Ape kind of trains him a bit and then it kind of picks up until the chase and then the bike and then the chase ends and it kind of slows down again and then just kind of so there's I'm wondering if when I watch this with commercials if that would have made sense if sequences if the if the speed up and slow down speed up and slow down were regulated by the commercials I, I didn't get that feeling as I was watching it usually I'm pretty good at that but regardless I, th- I think it's pretty I think it's pretty solid don't expect those sort of the the um the the wacky it starts off right at the beginning does die down but then it picks up and then it dies down a little and then it picks up but it's still pretty darn solid throughout yes everyone's maybe mugging a little bit more than they should um but and yes maybe the the characters aren't as as one note as the characters could be on police academy you got to love them after a while and they were funny the the traits they had were funny i'm getting to know the folks on here and i'm getting to like them more after the gorilla gram so i think that is about it for the gorilla gram yeah yeah it is and yeah yeah starsky and hutch butch and cassidy butch and sundance the two old guys they don't get to do much they have a scene where they're monitoring um in the zoo and they get their bologna and liverwurst sandwiches taken from them and Yana Nirvana as, as Haggerty, I don't think really shows up at all. Alphabet is a funny scene uh, where he's at the dispatch and he gets a call about an ape on a bike or a guy in a gorilla suit on a bike or yeah, I forget what it is. And as as Night Train and, and and Price are walking out and they walk back in and say, "What? A guy in a gorilla suit on a on a yeah." And I thought it was a pretty good scene. So yeah, overall, if you enjoyed the first the TV movie or you just kind of liked it. I think this is better. It's not I mean you're not going to you're not going to be in absolute hysterics pee your pants fall out of your chair, but you will laugh sometimes, you will be interested, and it's fun to see the gang again, it's fun to see it develop. So, having said that, I would now like to play this. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Bourbon Street Beat. Starring Richard Long. In New Orleans, Andrew Duggan. This is the blues. With Arlene Howell and Van Williams. Produced by Warner Brothers. Bourbon Street Beat, episode 18, Key to the City, aired February 1st, 1960, directed by James V. Kern, teleplay by Robert C. Dennis, story by Jim Barnett. We are in Natchez, Mississippi. There's a riverboat, the Delta Princess. Rex was supposed to be there, but he hurt himself, so he sent Cal and Kenny there, and their purpose is to meet a gentleman named Tim Talbot, who was a New Orleans 
politician who, in quote, skipped town and went to Mexico and now has contacted Rex to uh, meet him on the riverboat and give him a, a series of files and things which are going to incriminate some jerks back in New Orleans. And so... Uh, the, the unfortunate thing is uh, uh, Cal has only seen a uh, fuzzy picture of him, so he doesn't know what Talbot looks like, and Kenny doesn't know really what's going on at all. But the, the thing that they're looking for is he has, Talbot has a little key to the city uh, that they're looking for. They get on board the boat, and it becomes sort of a ship of spies type thing, but not quite. There's a man named Mr. Borman who might be Mr. Talbot. There's a woman who might be Talbot's daughter. She does have his little key on a charm bracelet kind of thing. There's a secret agent guy there. There's a guy with a sinister mustache who kills the secret agent guy and takes over the, the secret agent's um, uh, identity. Um, there's a captain who just wants everyone to shut up and, and, and go to bed and, and all kinds of craziness is happening and everyone is looking, trying to figure out where Talbot is might this guy be Talbot, might that guy be Talbot, who the gal is trying to stop this guy with the mustache there are a bunch of fights and they're all trying to find these files these Talbot files and obviously some people are trying to find them for good purposes and others are trying to find them because they're jerks but that's the basics of this the majority of it it takes place on the Delta Princess traveling through traveling at night uh, to uh, from Natchez to New Orleans uh, shrouded in fog and um, this ain't the love boat baby uh, let me give you a blast and Mitchell and I will chat about it Hey, Mitchell. Hey, Dan. Uh, how are you? I'm all right. Uh, is there a place around here called Shackleton's? Take take a left at the corner and go by where the old gas station used to be, and you'll find it. I know exactly where that is. It's Shackleton's. <laughs> Shackleton's is the name of the the kind of seedy place that um, that. Uh, Cal, yeah, Cal goes to in this episode, folks. But there, the episode basically starts with um, yelling up, "Do you know a place called Shackleton's?" And there's like a shadowy guy on you know the riverboat, kind of looking down, going, "Did someone mention Shackleton's? They have a great <laughs> buffet." No, he doesn't say that. But, um, so, so we're talking. Hey, Mitchell, how are you, by the way? I'm well. How are you, Dan? Happy Good. New Year. Happy New Year. Welcome to 2019, everyone. I know what you're saying. It's been 2019 for a few weeks. Well, it's our first time here doing That's this. That's right. And, and we're actually, this episode aired in February of 60, so around the, the time, um, almost 50 years later. Wait a minute, 70, 89, is it 50? Yeah, that's right. Is it 60? 60 years later? 20, 4,000 yeah. years later? It's a long time, folks. 60. Yeah, wow. Um, oh, gosh. All right, so I guess I guess let's do let's talk key to the city, um, the 18th episode of uh, the Great Bourbon Street Beats. Um, Mitchell, what did you what overall thoughts on it? Well, we've got uh, starting off with the cast. There are two very familiar faces that people out there probably will recognize. You've got Rhodes Reason, who uh, plays uh, Sanders and is in almost every kind of TV show and uh, many movies of this era as well. So he's a he's a Warner Brothers favorite. So Rhodes Reason. And then you've also got the very young and fetching Shirley Knight, who uh, is also uh, probably a little more than a starlet by this time. She's going to wind up, uh, I think, with an Oscar nomination at some point in her career. And if I'm wrong about that, uh, 
have mercy on me. But it's a it's a good cast, and it's a very interesting uh, episode. It, it this one really is a mystery, and whether it's written this way or whether it's just because of the editing on the version that we've seen, which is probably a syndicated cut. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, there's some things that they're explaining as they go, but uh, it starts off with the paddle boat, uh, Ryan. And, it's you know, it struck me that a paddle wheel would be a really neat way to uh, go down the Mississippi. Of course, living here in Minneapolis, where we're on the Mississippi, uh, we see them all the time, but they're just kind of the tourist things. I'm not sure if you can actually take a uh, a paddle wheel down all the way to New Orleans anymore, but it looked like it would be a fun thing to do. But uh, I digress. The um, we're only let in on the story bit by bit, and so we've got we've got Cal and Kenny on this paddle wheel, and we don't really know why. Even Cal isn't exactly sure, because he doesn't know who his client is. He only knows the name, doesn't know what they look like or anything. And um, we only get, we get into it, we keep getting into it, we finally find out what it is that is, that, that is the subject of the investigation, but we don't get it for a while, and we're kind of in the dark as much as the two of them are. And I, if if that was done intentionally rather than just because things were being cut out, I like it. I think it is a, a neat way to let us in on the story, and it's it's a pretty good story actually. Although there are some really quirky things about it that I'm sure we're going to get into as we go along. I yeah I I I most agree with you on this one. It 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 does start off wonderfully with sort of uh, we're looking for this guy. What does he look like? I don't know. What are we doing with it? I don't know. We're kind of looking after him. How do we do it if we don't know who he is? And it's and it kind of you you get this cast of characters that kind of build up, and some of them are shiftier than others, and some of them could be the Mr. Talbot who they're looking for, and some of them like the lady might not be Mr. Talbot, and and then you get the shifty guy with the mustache. Hey, he's got a mustache. Oh yeah, and you see him stab. A guy in the chest like three minutes mm. in um and you get you get shackleton's which is kind of the saddest well no they actually make a point of uh, when, when when cal leaves that he he feels like everyone clammed up when he yeah. came in because they knew him so i'd like to say that place was swinging before he stepped in and, and then he also says you know you, you can go back to uh talking now i'm leaving mm. yeah and, and uh i i like it's sort of um it's not quite like that, but yeah, I, I love the fact that it's very specifically when Cal goes to see the, the captain, the captain says, oh, there are only like eight other people on here. So it has very much, this isn't quite right, but sort of a get smart ship of spies feel where yeah. you know, it's just it's just a bunch of really sinister people um, in the fog in the middle of the night and they're all looking for this guy and something that he has or might not have and, and they have... T- you know, it's like the 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 thing is like he's supposed to Cal's supposed to go up to someone and say uh, mention the key to the city, but then the gal has the key to the city on her wrist. So wh- what's that about? And is it, and it's like it it is like you said it it could be we could be missing a minute or two here and well we probably are. I mean the episode's mm. like forty forty seven minutes on the version I have. They could have sped it up slightly, but still this would have been like fifty three fifty something like that. Yeah, it probably. Yeah. So so we're, we're missing a few minutes. I'd I'd love to think that they wouldn't have cut out you know major bits of the, yeah. the story, but then you never know. Um, 
but it does have a wonderful sort of forever. There's a moment about halfway in where the where the um, uh, put it in quotes secret service guy is talking to Cal and he keeps asking him questions and Cal doesn't have any answers. And Cal and he's like, well, you don't really know much of what's going on here, do you? And Cal's like, you got it. Well, he doesn't say <laughs> that, but he's like, I, I really don't mm-hmm. know. And it's kind of neat that the two of them. They, it's almost like they got like. Um, uh, uh, to, to reference, um, well, well, no, this isn't quite right. But I was going to reference a past show we've done on here, Voyagers, where the characters sort of drop out of the sky into a situation, and then they have to sort of figure out what's going on. That's almost what this is like. Yeah. Like, like they sort of dropped onto this boat. And it's like, okay, all we know is this guy, key to the city, and we have to try to protect him. And they have no. I mean, I love the fact that they don't have a picture of him. He was like a top-ranking politician that they gave a key yes. to the city to. You would think someone would say. Take a picture of that guy. Yeah, and, but they and didn't. with a nickname like uh, what was it, Tiny Tim? Was a Tiny Tim Talbot, <laughs> and so owing to the long and rich history of colorful characters in the political scene in Louisiana, oh. I, I think. This is a nice touch, but it would be almost inconceivable to me that he was so far in the background, so much the guy behind the scenes that nobody knew what he looked like. Yeah, yeah, that that does seem a little little weird. Yeah, I, I and I mean, I, I was I was I was mostly okay with it because you keep meeting guys yes. who look like they could be him. You're like, that's him, but it's not him. Oh, that's him, and they keep zinging you. You're like, oh, fat. Nope, that's not him. Or he's lying. No, maybe that's not him. And like, it keeps up the mystery pretty strong, and it keeps it up all the way to sort of the end with like these secret papers that he had were they hidden, and that's sort of the last thing that goes on. And it's um, I don't. I think it's um, uh, I yeah, I quite enjoy this. I mm-hmm. I love I love I just love the the setting. I love being stuck on on the boat, and there's a killer on there. And and it's just trying to figure out what's going on. I love that. I think it does it nicely. I mean, I'm I, I don't know if the um, if if the boat is ever 100 percent convincing as anything but like a love boat style, you know, big set. But I, w- I was pulled in. And it well, won't be over. And so. in fact, if if any of our listeners out there are into doing these dinner murder mysteries, this would be a heck of a good idea for uh, writing your own mystery because you've got a small cast, you've got an enclosed space, you've got a clear mystery that's going on you've got multiple ways that you could play it so if you're into that kind of thing you could do worse than to borrow the plot from this yes and and you have a great mystery that is is not not, there there is a mystery like who is who is this guy but there's also like what is all this about too that adds to it so it's Mm -hmm. like there's a mystery on the mystery which i think i think works really nice and then you ask yourself well is there uh, who's the bad guy we know this guy is the bad guy are there multiple bad guys and if Mm -hmm. so why and is this guy a bad guy or a good guy and when you uncover the bad guy then you're convinced that he must be the good guy but that's not necessarily the case (laughs) he's he's not lying folks I know if he if he lost you there, he's not lying. That's absolutely right. That, that's the way it goes. It constantly, yeah. It's it's. I think it's really nicely done, and they they do keep mm-hmm. it. And and you know, maybe at the end of the day, since it did make sense to me in the end, if someone a syndicator did remove a minute or two, eh, maybe it yeah. helps. Maybe 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 you know maybe there was an opening. Uh, maybe there was an opening scene that got cut with like Rex saying, "Okay, here's what's going on," and and so when when it started, we would be like, "Oh, Shackleton's. We know where that is." They have the buffet. No, um, the, <laughs> I, 
I, I, I'd like to think that, yeah, maybe, maybe if, if something was sniffed, maybe they helped us on this one. I'm not sure. But uh, what, what else do you have? I'm going to Well, in, in all of the, in all the conversation we've had about this, we've actually overlooked one of the most important characters in the entire oh, episode, yes. the cat. Yes. There is, there is a cat in this, in this episode that is in almost every important scene that goes on. Every time something happens you look around and there's the cat and uh it's it's not a black cat either which you might think uh for a a, a foggy dark mystery like yeah. this as near as i can tell from a black and white show it's probably orange and that's uh, my guess yeah, yeah and yeah. but but he he is in almost every major scene and there was one point where they're they're talking about uh tiny tim and this is before we learn about what about the final resolution of tiny tim of tim where i i I turned to my wife and i said i've got it tim is the cat (laughs) (laughs) and I un, until it all became clear, I'll tell you, I was half expecting that it was going to turn out that all the, that the 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 thing, the person that everybody was looking for, was actually this orange cat. <laughs> <laughs> but there, there's even a scene where he yeah. goes around a corner, and all you see is the tail kind of swishing back and forth, and um, the captain is holding him at one point. And uh, so you get kind of the impression that he's the captain's cat. But then, then I'm, I'm thinking, well, I know why he's on the ship. He actually owns the shipping line. The cat's the owner. Of course. Just like there's there's this wonderful movie from the 50s called Rhubarb, and that's also about an orange cat. And this the, the premise, would, I won't go into too deeply, but the bottom line is this cat winds up inheriting the Brooklyn Dodgers. And, um, the, and, and Ray Milland plays his uh, keeper. And um, the... The, the players are all kind of bummed out about working for a cat until one of them kind of scratches them on the head and all of a sudden he gets a raise and another one starts getting hits and they all start to adopt the cat as their good luck charm and people start calling them the Brooklyn rhubarbs and all this kind of thing. But uh, anyway, that you know that's neither here nor there. It's just this idea that, well, maybe the reason the cat's uh, on the ship is because he owns it. Why not? <laughs> Why not? Yeah. yeah, and he likes to see justice done. Yes, as as all good cats do. Well, and there, there is a scene where Cal has found himself in the brig, mm-hmm. and um, and of course the cat comes through the window and bumps over this can of I think it's turpentine, something flammable. Oh, it's kerosene. Kerosene, kerosene yes. And and so Cal decides, well, the way he's going to get out of here is to start a fire. Uh, again, I don't think I'm giving anything away because you know that Cal is not going to be in the brig when the pivotal scenes occur. And uh, so he, he starts this, this fire, and I'm thinking, well, it shouldn't be so hard to control a fire on a wooden ship, should it? He should be, <laughs> you know, he should, he should be able to handle this well. We know from the past episodes that Cal is good oh, yes. at fires. Yes. So, um, uh, of, of course, he should be able to easily control a small blaze and keep it from enveloping a completely wooden ship. Yeah, 
<laughs> well, I'd like to think maybe that if the if the cat does own the shipping line, then the cat knows like, okay, we're gonna be all right with this kerosene. Yeah. Maybe it got maybe maybe yeah, the cat knew it was like watered down or something like that, and it wasn't gonna be a. Str- I don't I don't know. Um, well, but, you know, Cal maybe, does maybe... rescue the cat at the end of that scene yes. too. He takes uh, yeah. the cat with him. So mm-hmm. uh, I um. I, I I just I just thought of one moment, one strange. You know, I I think yeah, the 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 episode as far as the script goes, it 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 works really well. Apart from one strange moment where um, uh, Cal is found trying to get into the lady with the key. I forget her name with the key on her. Um, uh, uh, Vera. Vera trying to get into Vera's um uh, stateroom there uh, room, and uh, a bunch of thugs show up and. Say the pardon me. Say they're working for this secret agent guy, and they drag Cal to the the um the uh the captain's uh, the um the thing with the wheel in it the the bridge. The, the bridge yes. the, thank you the bridge um <laughs> and, and the captain's yelling at Cal and Cal's like well this guy isn't really a, s- a secret agent well he's not a secret agent he's secret I keep calling him a secret agent but is he a secret agent I don't know he secret service and the guy pulls out his his you know uh, credentials which don't have a picture on them right. they're just like a name. And and Cal is like, uh, no, that's not right. Uh, you know, we talked to someone earlier who said he was this. No, I've got my credentials right here. And then suddenly Cal like spazzes, and he like tries to grab, give me that badge. And it's like Cal, you know that's not going to help. And immediately the captain says, put him in this, put him in the storeroom, lock him up. And it's like Cal, why did you do that? And that's just sort of one of those brief moments where it's like. I get what they're doing. They want to lock Cal away for a bit and make Vera a little more, um, you know, vulnerable and and give the um, let the uh, let the bad guy think he has a bit more free reign because Cal's been locked up. But at the same time, it's like it that doesn't seem like Cal to me to spaz like that. No. That was a weird bit of a weird moment. I no, thought. well, and, and the other thing it does is it brings Kenny back into the uh, story because uh, yeah. for a long stretch of this story, Kenny's nowhere to be seen or heard from. Yes. And yes. I've even got it written down here about where does Kenny come into this? Is he just, is he just there to provide somebody for Cal to talk to or is he only pre- is he only present to cause something to happen that would not have happened had he not been there well as it turns out he is does get into the plot a little more than that but that that I think is part of of it too that by uh getting Cal out of the way it allows Kenny to be a little more active in what's going on yeah yeah and 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 uh I th- there's a, there's a great moment where Kenny um uh, he goes to get the fire axe to free Cal from the uh, the, the storeroom uh, brig there, and he gets clobbered over the head by the bad guy. And then when um, I you know I don't know if this is a spoiler. When someone else is doing something bad near the end, Kenny like leaps on the guy and starts punching him and wailing on him. And Cal kind of pulls him back and says, "No, no." And he says, well, "This guy hit me over the head with the fire." Oh, it wasn't that guy. And he's like, oh, "Okay." <laughs> Uh, and the thing is, those two guys don't look alike. Trust no. me, these two guys. Yeah, but there's and I love. Now I don't know. I mean, this is when was the Untouchables still on at this time? I'm trying to think of violent shows. I think at this so. Time. Yes. Uh, because that the the fight between Cal and the bad guy oh. is really just it's it's pretty knockdown, drag out. I mean, so knocked down Dragon at one point when the bad guy swings a fire axe at Cal, Cal gets so scared that he looks like another guy. 
I don't yeah. know if you saw that. But there's a moment where it's like, oh, my God, Kel doesn't look like himself anymore. Now, it's not as bad as um, uh, I forget what there's a one of the season finales of the X-Files. I forget if it's the second season, Anasazi or the third season, which I don't remember the name of now. Um, there's a scene. I think it's Anasazi where Mulder has a fight with X, a deep throat successor in uh, the par- uh, parking garage. And my wife and I, every time that we see that scene, we love it because it's so obvious when when they cut from the close-ups of the two <laughs> actors, it's amazing. It's like two completely different guys. <laughs> it's like we're seeing, we were the first time we were watching it. My wife said, "Now who are these? Where are these guys fighting?" And I said, "I think it's their stunt doubles." Wait a minute. <laughs> I was like, "I think it's Anasazi. It's wherever he gets in a fight. Mulder gets in a fight with X in a parking garage, and it's the most egregious <laughs> stunt doubles <laughs> you've ever seen, apart from occasional moments here and there in like Doctor Who in the late '60s and '70s." Um, but it, but this is this is one of those moments like that. The guy bad guy rushes up with the fire axe, swings it at Cal. Cal leaps up, and suddenly it's like, "That's not Cal. Who is that? What's going on?" The, these uh, shows clearly were not made for big screen TVs, uh, high yes. definition uh, yes. look. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I think have, having seen that, I think I, I, I noticed that the second time I watched it. So I think on the first time, yeah, definitely. If I'd been watching this on a 1960 TV, I would not have seen it at all. But it was nice to see that here. And it is there is that great moment at the end of the fight where Cal sort of so beat up that the bad guy and Vera go down some steps and Cal doesn't actually walk down the steps. He like goes down the steps, like on the ground, like yes. head first. It's like, Whoa, that is, that is tenacity is what that is. That boy, that boy's going to win the day, whether he likes not it or gonna not. going to give up. No. Um, let's see. Uh, what else do I have? What else do you have? Um, I w- the, um, th- I may be wrong about this. I don't think so, but is this, the only episode we have seen in which neither Rex nor Melody make any appearance at all. Uh, no, they're in the end, aren't they? I, I can't. I can't remember, but um, I think the, you know the premise on this is what that Rex couldn't take the case because he's, he's like hurt his ankle. Yes. Yeah. So yeah I, I think he might. He might be. Which I wonder if that's true. I wonder if yeah. something had happened that uh, Richard Long Related. wasn't able to do anything, and this is how they wrote him out of it, because okay. um, because usually the two of them do appear at least mm-hmm. sometime that they share uh, together. But do you think, uh, my thought was maybe it maybe um maybe someone learned ahead of time that he had been asked to look into Talbot being on the boat and they attacked him or something and he mm. didn't realize that's what it was and he just all that happened was he hurt his ankle I like or, or I like that idea maybe and then a cat disappeared around the, no no that's um, <laughs> the, the well, cat really wanted to be Cal it is important that Cal and not Rex is in this because um the reason Rex Vera, yeah. was in yeah Vera would have recognized uh, uh, Rex, at least by name, if nothing, if nothing else. So it's it's important that Cal needs to be in it, and they handled it pretty well that way. But I like I like that idea that uh, that um, they somebody was actually trying to prevent Rex from being on there. Mm-hmm. And he tried. He they tried once, and maybe it was too too dangerous to try. Or they thought they had sort of incapacitated him. And so they were mm-hmm. like, oh, who cares if he's not dead? He, he can't make it. But then they didn't realize he would just send Cal and Kenny 
to, to take over and not really yep. tell them what was going on. Just, yeah, looking for this guy named Tim Talbot. Yeah, we don't know what he looks like. Just go protect him. Okay, that sounds great. Yeah. Should we go down? To, should we stop at Shackleton's? Yeah. That's, um, Shackleton's. You know, they, they he does they do appear right at the end um, because he he uh, Rex is some says something like, "Oh my gosh, Vera Vera Talbot, I remember you when you were tiny Vera." No, I'm kidding, because uh, tiny Tim, yeah. you were tiny Vera with the pigtails <laughs> and uh, being precocious or something like that. And and he he's got his like like cane. You, you don't actually see it too clearly, at least when I was watching it. Maybe there's a great shot. No, you do see him walking away. But when you first see him and he, he says him like, welcome to the Cripple Detectives Club or something like that. And then they walk inside and it's all sweet and lovely and, you know, it's all... Uh, well, I think that's... Do you have anything else for this one? I'm all I'm all out. Huh? I, I want to hit Shackleton's and hit that buffet. Yeah. <laughs> I'm ready for it. <laughs> Yay! Oh I, ho- oh, I hope they have the Lobster Newberg tonight. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, Lobster Newberg, one of those meals that when I was a kid, um, I only knew about it from Green Acres because it was one of Mr. Douglas's favorites. And when, when Ralph Monroe takes over oh. cooking and he she can actually cook, she says, I'm going to make this and this. And he says, can you make Lobster Newberg? And she says, you bring me a lobster and I'll Newberg it. So that's she knows what's up. <laughs> I think I've only had it once, but uh, I remember enjoying it. But Mitchell, where can we find you online? And do you have a book out? Feel free to say uh, whatever you want to either of those questions. Well, of course, the most important place you can find me online is at these podcasts. Yes, because, of course. Uh, yes. <laughs> but otherwise, you can find me in my own site at um, itsabouttv.com. Uh, my latest book is called The Electronic Mirror, what classic TV uh, tells us about who we were and who we are and everything in between. And it's uh, a collection of essays about classic television and how it interrelates with American culture in uh, the last half of the 20th century. Excellent. Thank you so much. And it's much. available at all fine retailers uh, online. Yay! So, um, well, if you guys don't mind, uh, Mitch and I are going to go hit the buffet one more time. Shackleton's! Bourbon Street! Feet. We are at the headquarters of the Intersect, where Leonard Driscoll, director of the agency, and Dr. Abigail Lawrence are waiting for Special Agent Sam Casey. Did I know that her name was Abigail Lawrence? I, I guess I did. I guess I did. But that's Abigail. That was a little more Gemini, man. I want to thank uh, the Power Records site run by the, uh, the great Rob Kelly, who joined us so long ago for Police Squad. Uh, he, he actually, uh, I was able to get uh, uh, Gemini Man stuff from, from his site, which is awesome. And again, we're still not covering Gemini Man right now. Maybe in the future, but not right now. I hope you enjoyed it, everyone. Erie, Indiana, Last Precinct, Bourbon Street Beat. I think they're a fun bunch. Ah, all right. Where are we online? Eventually, supertrain.blogspot.com. Twitter at eSupertrain1. You just go on Facebook and type in like Eventually Supertrain, and we should come up there. Uh, what else? eSupertrain at yahoo.com, I believe, is the email address i just blanked on it but that sounds right to me we're on soundcloud itunes stitcher hopefully you're listening from one of those uh or maybe someplace else exotic that i don't know about that would be awesome uh you can find my uh writings on some polish american guy reviews things uh my some of my reviews are still up on bleeding skull although the last time i went on there and i did a search for my name dan budnick b-u-d-n-i-k nothing came up 
So your best bet is to try to type in, if you're looking for my stuff on Bleeding Skull, unless they fixed it since I tried a few days ago, uh, type in something like, go to search and type in Frankenstein 80, that's, that's hyphen 80, or um, what else is on there? I think The Terrorists, the Nick Millard film, I think The Alpha Incident, type in one of the titles and you'll find me and then you can click on my name and it'll take you to the other reviews. Uh, I have uh, books, Bleeding Skull and 1980s Trash Horror Odyssey, 80s Action Movies on the Cheap, uh, I'm on Made for TV Mayhem show with Amanda Reyes and Nate Johnson. Uh, I'm on Podcast Mania with a bunch of friends, including uh, Amanda and and Amy. Yay! Uh, and so that is about it for episode 62. I hope you all you all enjoyed it. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next time with more uh, eerie precinct beats. Huh? What do you think about that? Well, it's about time you showed up. Welcome back to Intersect, Sam. I thought I was on vacation. Sure, Sam, but now that you've recovered from your They're accident, always calling him in from vacation, isn't that? Sabotaged atomic laser exploding on me underwater, making me invisible. Well, you are fully recovered now, thanks to Abby here. And I thought you might like to take a trip to Europe. Europe. It's great. I love the to fact the tiny that... nation of Cronovia. Cronovia. I love the fact that that's actually something they do later on in the series. They would send him to like places in Europe, whereas the earlier episodes were more around the area of Intersect, if I can just bring that up. I know that the episode was supposed to end, but I must have them out of order. That's clearly the first one. Uh, and I love the uh, the very quick explanation of, of how he, he became invisible. I love, too, it's like, it's, it's like uh, you know, Bergen and McCarthy, a ventriloquist act over the radio, or when they, uh, Bob and Ray used to have Tex Blaisdell do rope tricks on the radio. You know, it's a show about a man who turns invisible. And they do an audio of it. Oh, just listen to a few minutes more. Not a few minutes more. Maybe a few minutes more. Oh, I get the feeling it's going to be a working holiday. I'll be going with you. In that case, let's go. Just a minute, Hotshot. I'd like you to take care of something while you're there. Well, I knew there was a catch. We've received word through our intelligence channels that a certain Dr. Anton Flom wants to defect to the United States. Who is he? He's a specialist in infiltration detection systems. Intersect could use a man of his caliber on its staff.